I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, Literary Director of the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. Joining me for this episode are Mark Stevens and Annalyn Swan, Pulitzer Prize-winning biographers of two of the 20th century's greatest and most defining artists, Willem de Kooning and Francis Bacon. To my mind, both of Mark and Annalyn's books, each a decade in the making, de Kooning and the recently published Francis Bacon Revelations, join that very short list of definitive, generation-spanning biographies that simply must be read by anyone with an interest in the history of modern art. These are not just beautifully drawn portraits of two of our most iconic and charismatic artists. They're fascinating cultural portraits of the milieu and times in which those artists lived and worked. Mark and Anna Lynn, welcome to Beyond the Page. So good to be speaking with you both. Great to be here. Thank you, John. So now that I have you here, and before we jump headlong into the exhilarating despair of Francis Bacon, (laughs) I'd love to hear how you ended up choosing your subjects, how you got first to de Kooning, and then you decided to make your second 10-year plunge into Bacon. So you were both widely respected critics before all this. Mark, you as an art critic at Newsweek, The New Republic, New York Magazine, Anna Lynn, You were a music critic and the arts editor at Newsweek. But to make the leap into writing biographies of the scale, research, and level of detail that you did together, I should probably add here, for anyone who doesn't already know, that you two are married. How did that happen? Well, why don't I take the de Kooning and Mark can take Bacon? Um, (laughs) 
de Kooning was an obvious natural for us. I mean, first off, a major, major artist of the 20th century, abstract expressionist. It was a fantastic moment in time in American art. There was a true scene going on down in the village in New York City. And no one had ever written about this charismatic figure and really great abstract expressionist painter. And not only that, we had connections into the art world of Long Island. Mark's mother, Polly Craft, was an artist. So we had direct access to the circle around de Kooning. And boy, was that a fun book to write. Uh, I would add that the reason we selected those two particular artists is because in addition to being fascinating painters who lived very, very interesting lives, they're also emblematic of their culture in a way that not all very good painters are. De Kooning, as an American immigrant, raised all those wonderful American issues in a very particular way. And Francis Bacon, as a homosexual and arguably the darkest painter of the 20th century, uh, stands for a certain kind of, as you said, John, exhilarated despair and confrontation with uh, the demons of the 20th century. So each artist had a larger profile in a way than just as a painter. Absolutely true. So just to stay on the literary process for a minute, and back to you two, writing as a married team. So how does that work exactly? I speak as someone who has never tried that myself. Do you each have particular areas of the researching and writing process that you're primarily responsible for, or how do you do it? That's, that's such a wonderful sauce. question. <laughs> it is a secret no, sauce. it's a secret sauce. Well, that's invariably the question. It's posed in a slightly different way that we had when we were actually live, you know, on tour talking about our de Kooning book. And usually the first question from the audience came from a woman who stood up and asked, you two are married. How in the world did your marriage survive writing a book together? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but to Mark's point about the secret sauce, there is so much work that goes into these biographies. You could split up research, you can split up writing, but at the end of the day, it's all about the magic of drafts. I mean, we probably wrote six or seven different drafts, both of de Kooning and Bacon, bringing everything together and making it stylistically, not just an art book, but a narrative, something that you'd want to read. Well, they both are that. I mean, you both are wonderful storytellers. And so it is that combination of extraordinary research and then being able to craft that narrative that you were just speaking of. Was it a challenge when you first started to do that together? Well, the together is, I think we agree that you should, in a biography, or at least the biographies that we write, we wanted the prose to be transparent so that you look through the words to the figure that you're describing or giving a portrait of. And that doesn't mean transparent prose should be dull or without epigrams and clever moments and so on, but it should, in an overall sense, not distract the attention from the subject to the writer. So mm -hmm. since we had a general agreement, I think, on the way the prose should read and feel, um, I think that disagreements were not likely to crop up. We also both love, I think, 19th century novels. And in our day, certain kinds of literary biographies can deliver some of that feeling of the 19th century novel, you know, of a person who's born and then dies, which is such a wonderful idea. You begin right. at the beginning <laughs> and you end at the end. A lot of books don't do that anymore. Absolutely. So that leads into another curiosity of mine, which was 
whether when you were starting out with all this, you had any particular literary models in mind in terms of artist biographies. You were just mentioning literary biographies and probably thinking of many of the same ones. But in this case, with artist biographies, I guess I'm thinking of, let's say, John Richardson's Monumental Life of Picasso, or perhaps Hilary Sperling's Matisse. Did you have anything like that in your mind that you, books you really admired in that vein? Those are certainly on our shelves, and we've read both of them. I mean, Hilary Sperling, and it's just marvelous. But I think to the working structure that we were looking at, it really does go a little bit more towards a literary biography mm-hmm. like Richard Elman's fabulous biography of Oscar Wilde. But for us, because Oscar Wilde was defined his era as the Wildean figure, and then Francis Bacon was continually called the Oscar Wilde of his day, it was sort of a natural model to look for. And also, Elman treats the works very, very beautifully in Oscar Wilde and in James Joyce. What he does is he will write about the life of the the writer, and then he will kind of segregate off the actual work. He'll turn to Dorian Gray, for example, and it will not interfere with the sort of role of Oscar Wilde's life. And we tried to do the same in our biography. And Mark, you would like to speak to that, I know. Well, my problem with many biographies of imaginative figures, as opposed to, say, politicians or soldiers, or people who have a very active narrated life. My problem is that the work, which is after all the most important thing about the person, Mm -hmm. and the reason finally that you're writing the biography, the work, when you describe an imaginative work of art in a biography, very often it becomes this indigestible pudding, these little cups of of really boring pudding that are large the narrative in in a disagreeable way. Because works of art often don't have a narration that fits clearly, with the, the narration of the life. And True. also, you never want to reduce the art to the life or the life to the art. So what we did is we do describe works of art in the text moving along, but usually not at great length. But then we break out significant works that are significant for a variety of reasons into their own discrete sections. And that allows the reader, I think, a rest and a, and a way to lyrically engage with a work of art and think about it apart from the life. It puts some space between the work and the life, which is also a sign, I think, of a certain modesty in a biographer, that you're not explaining everything. I think it works so well that at the end of these chapters, the way you've organized it, the reader comes after this wonderful narrative that does include some description of the works, but then you come a spotlight shines on one particular important work that has also been relevant to the chapter you were just coming out of. And for me, it was almost like being taken on a private tour of a Bacon retrospective by two extraordinary guides. And the retrospectively, what it's allowed is that as I think about Bacon's life, these particular works of art shine through the narrative, and I recall them in a way I never had before. So I think it's really successful, and I find it very interesting, and it makes total sense that Elman's wild biography was also inspirational for that. So you tackled these books, and they're both monumental undertakings, and I'm extraordinary figures, each one, but I'm interested in how you might compare the literary challenges of de Kooning versus Bacon? 
Well, there are all kinds of different challenges. I think in both cases, the early life was uh, particularly interesting, challenging, and difficult because, you know, when people are young, other people are not writing down their opinions of them. They're not recording them. <laughs> and if they live a long life, the people who knew them when they were young are dead by the time you get to work. So to technically, to get all the information that you can is very important. And I think we did that in both cases, but also to make it fit into the larger narrative so that the beginning doesn't seem thin and the ending and the later part thick. Right. So you have a sort of seamless quality. And I think that's a literary issue. That's a, mm-hmm. a matter of focus. And you, you have to be very clever about that. So that actually takes me to one of the what I found in a book full of revelations, as the subtitle would suggest, one of the ones that was I found most revealing and surprising in the whole book, which was, I guess, the clarity with which you're able to evoke his childhood and its emotional resonances in his work. And Bacon's life has always been a kind of myth, you know, much of it self-created, of course, but you both have managed to get somehow the goods on how and perhaps why that myth got made and what lay underneath it. Would you talk about a little bit about his youth and what you consider most revealing about it? He was very lonely. He was an isolated, sickly, effeminate, asthmatic. Growing up in a really very difficult, horsey, everybody going on the hunt kind of world. Anglo-Irish, right? Anglo-Irish, which is sort of the last redoubt of the 18th century, in 18th century England. And uh, Bacon was simply not designed to be part of that. And his father was a dyspeptic, cruel major who really couldn't bear the thought of a girly child like this. And so he had uh, very few friends. He hardly went to school. And one of the things that Anna likes to talk about is that very early on, his great friends were women. And that continued to be the case uh, throughout his life. He had very good women friends. Yes, actually, one of the, my favorite revelations, as it were, in the book was that we drew out this other side of Bacon. Bacon is celebrated as the macho figure swaggering around with an entourage of all-male followers. That is the image that has come down in the popular imagination of Francis Bacon. But he also had, as Mark said, girlfriends, girls who were friends from the get-go, and he also, throughout life, turned to women again and again as sort of comforting friends. Uh, some of them were artists, like Isabel Rothstorn, who was one of his the greatest of all Francis Bacon's female friends. So they could actually kind of talk shop in addition to everything else. Sonia Orwell, beautiful, but very difficult. Uh, she became a different person around Francis Bacon. And he painted many of these women over time. Muriel Belcher, the famous dragon lady at the door of the colony club. All of them were transmogrified by Bacon into paintings. I mean, he painted Isabel Rostorn in this wonderful painting called Isabel Rostorn standing in a street in Soho. 
it, to my way of looking, is one of his top 10 best paintings because he has depicted her as this grand dame and all in black, sort of an imperious look on her face, sort of looking as if at her minions in, in towards the side. And everything about the painting suggests her strength. And he went on to paint her about another 15 or so times. He painted Henrietta Morris again and again. He loved, uh, Henrietta Morris later told her daughter that Bacon loved her Herculean body. But in general, that was a myth that we were at pains to dispel in our biography. And what about Bacon's childhood nanny, Nanny Lightfoot? I mean, she's an extraordinary character. Did she really live with him until she died, sleep on his kitchen table, and work the door at his illegal gambling parties? Yes, she's one of the women who uh, early on, I think, really saved Bacon's life. Because in this aristocratic household, very cold place, she was the person who tucked Bacon into bed every night. She also came from rural Cornwall, so she had a perspective on the world that was very different. It was mischievous, it was that you had to do whatever you had to do to get along. And so she obviously loved Bacon, and Bacon absolutely adored her. And they had a kind of uh, funny partnership throughout her life. She had no problem, I suppose, with his being homosexual because she would look in the adverts in the, in the Times and other places to find suitable men who he could maybe uh, <laughs> uh, spend some time with and, uh, and make a little money when he was young and down and out. Right. So, yes, yeah, so she provided a working class perspective. And Bacon, that working class perspective was important to Bacon throughout his life, including with many of his lovers. So all of this, including Bacon's great manners when he wanted, it suggests a man who developed according to his own timeline and always according to his own tune. So Bacon liked to claim, I think, that he had hardly any formal education. He was entirely self-taught as a painter, not established as an artist really until his mid-30s. How true is that? That's actually quite true. He had only about a year and a half of formal schooling, he probably had some rather unimportant lessons in drawing in Paris. Uh, he had a friend, Roy Demestre, who, who probably taught him uh, the basics about how to lay down the paint and prime a canvas, that kind of thing, although later he didn't work with prime canvases. He really was a largely self-invented person, and he always insisted upon that. He wanted to be uh, born without any connection, as if flung from the head of Zeus, we say, born just suddenly, miraculously there as, as a great painter. That's part of his persona, and he insisted upon it. And as with everything about his persona, there's some truth, some exaggeration, mm -hmm. and some theater. But nor did he want any acolytes, right? Once he became more established. I mean, he wanted to spring from nothing and sort of be completely sui generis in a way. Well, it's interesting that you say that because for a while he was painting in a studio at the Royal College of mm -hmm. Art. And at that particular period of time, he was a, somewhat of a transformative figure at the Royal College. It was changing anyway. But all of these students began trying to emulate Bacon and no one could. He not only was not interested in anybody painting like him, but they couldn't do it. Only Bacon could mm -hmm. channel Bacon. You know, one thing, John, that's really unbelievably difficult to do is to create a new kind of figure. It almost doesn't happen. But if you look at Bacon's figure, that's a new kind of figure. It doesn't look like anything else. Therefore, it's almost inimitable because if you adopt his manner, you become simply a, a copycat. 
I was just going to connect that to his feelings about Picasso when he first encountered his work in the late 20s, I think it was, in Paris. I mean, would you say that about Picasso in the figure and then Bacon yes, in the figure? Yes, but Picasso certainly created a new kind of figure, preeminently in the 20th century. But Bacon did too. Bacon would admit Picasso as a, an influence, but almost really nobody else in a serious way. And he only admitted a certain period of Picasso as influential in his own work. He wanted to be by himself. He wanted to be alone. He wanted to be powerful and independent. And that does come from his youth. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the Bacon figure, right? And so I'm struck by how Bacon always seemed to suggest, you know, as we were talking, like his career as an artist kind of came out of nowhere in 1944 with that famous triptych, three studies for figures at the base of a crucifixion. I mean, was it as we were talking about out of nowhere and what makes that painting so significant, both for his career and for the history of, of 20th century art? It did not come out of nowhere. Uh, Bacon, the, one of the great secrets of Bacon's life is that as a young man, he was working very hard and very steadily as a painter for a very long time before that famous triptych appeared. Uh, the mm -hmm. triptych itself shocked London because it was exactly what London did not want to see at the end of the Second World War. It was garish, scary, orange, orange like the, uh, the flaring of bombs and the explosions of, and the fire in London. And it, it also suggested a certain complicity. The central figure is looking at you as if to say, you're my friend, let's talk. So that it did not allow the viewer to think, oh, it's the Germans who caused the war. Uh, it's fascists, it's the other, it's in fact, human beings who cause the war. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think that we added to the Bacon lore, John, was the time yeah. that Bacon would spent leading up to that famous breakthrough painting. In the 30s, he had painted very unsuccessfully a, a number of paintings that were titled with Wound of a Crucifixion, things like that. So he was clearly tracking on these sort of major profound issues very early in his career, but he didn't know how to get there. But the two years that he spent sequestered away from London, out in the country in Petersville, about 60 miles from London, where he saw only the picture post magazines with these horrible Nazis snarling in mouths and faces on the cover, yeah. and he where he read the Greek tragedies. And that kind of coalesced that vision that you see in the 1944 Three Studies. That's why we talk about it as a landmark work. I mean, he always said it was his breakthrough, but it was even bigger than, in a sense, than just a one-time breakthrough. You know, it spoke to the vision he would have for the rest of his life. And it was formed in those definitive years of the war when he was out in the country. Yep. And like Giacobetti's work, I know you discuss this in the book, but it captured something fundamental about the human condition during the century and after the world wars. I was really struck by that section in the book where he, during the war, I had no idea that he couldn't serve, obviously because of his asthma, but he was a, um, 
what is he, a, a plane watcher? Or I can't remember. No, well, he very early on joined in as a Red Cross volunteer, right. thereby shattering another great myth. You know, the myth was, you know, Francis Bacon did everything he could to avoid the war. Not at all. He came from a military family. Within one week of England entering World War II, there he was signing up for the Red Cross. And then subsequently, he served in the air raid precautions, which was not plane spotting as much as it was once the blitz began, actually, they were the ones who'd go in and try to dig bodies out of the rubble. And so it was a, you know, very, very grim. He was on the front lines, but until his lungs became pulverized and he had to leave. And that's when he left to go to his, the country and Bacon became Bacon. So by the late 40s, after that picture and, and some others and some shows, he's starting to get famous certainly in London and Britain. What was he like then? And what made him such a figure in London besides those notoriously disturbing paintings? I mean, there's a story from around that time that pretty unforgettable about Bacon and Princess Margaret at a grand party. Let's just say it didn't go too well. Would (laughs) Would you tell that story? Well, Bacon knew fancy people in London too. He went to a very, very fancy party that included a ball that included Princess Margaret. And uh, towards the end of the ball, Princess Margaret, who fancied herself as a singer, walked up to the orchestra and asked if she could sing Cole Porter. And she began to sing, uh, Let's Do It. And all the hangers-on and sycophants at the party thought this was just marvelous, and they were clapping and cheering, when suddenly, out of nowhere, comes this, Boo! 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 And these music hall boos shatter this aristocratic event. And it really, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful story, but it also marks a real division in English culture, doesn't it? Because uh, in the 50s... It was Bacon, get, of course. It was, it was Bacon, yes. Bacon, yes. And they were all... Lucian Freud was absolutely shocked as well. He could not believe that he would yeah. do this. The, uh, the room fell silent and Princess Margaret ran from the stage. Uh, she ran off. <laughs> so he, he upstaged royalty uh, in and this way. bridge this divide of class, I yes. suppose. Well, and then, and then in the 1950s, suddenly you, you can very easily be a very tough guy, theater and a playwright, for example. I mean, he helped bring mm-hmm. around the, the change in the culture in, in England that allowed for this kind of uh, aggressive musical. John Osborne musical. and the angry young men. I think yeah. so. I think so. Yeah, the kitchen sink school. You know, he was another a version of that. You know, he was tough. It was reality that he was portraying. So let's go back to the art during that period. You know, we're entering the 50s. Bacon's emerging as Britain's preeminent artist. He's a figurative painter, however much he distorts his figures. I mean, one critic, and this goes back to something you said, Mark, you know, Bacon had found the animal in the man and the man in the animal. And so this is at a time when the abstract expressionists are completely ruling New York. So how is Bacon's work perceived internationally at that time? And what's going on in the larger art world in Britain, America, and France? Well, one little bit of background before we start is that Bacon was emerging in the early 50s, but was not really that well-known at that point. The great figure of the time was Graham Sutherland, who was the, without question, the most famous British artist before the war, and even earlier than that, the neo-romantic movement. So Bacon was, at that point, 
1954, he had a, the first kind of small show at the Contemporary Art Society. And that was really where you began to see him being taken up by the establishment. But, you know, he wasn't really internationally famous until he had a dealer who was a wonderful dealer, but he wasn't with the big galleries. You know, he certainly wasn't known in the States until the 60s. Right. Mark? Well, his reputation was not high ever, really, in the United States among most critics. As you know, that was the time of abstract art and the Museum of Modern Art, a kind of a, yep. a cathedral of taste, was willing to regard Bacon as a very interesting sort of English eccentric painter, a literary painter, as people at the time used to do when they criticized figurative work. They, the worst thing you could say about someone is that it was literary. And because Bacon clung to the figure, he was thought to be old-fashioned. And uh, if he was not old-fashioned, he was a little, thought to be a little bit too grand vignol, a little too melodramatic. He did not suit the taste, mm -hmm. the dominant taste of the time. But that's, of course, uh, a credit to him in a way, that he was so independent. And, you know, right after he painted his famous three studies in 1944, he could have repeated himself, but he didn't. Instead... He began to paint very tonal, dark, moody works. He began to take chances. And uh, it's really an admirable, admirable yep. couple of decades after his first great painting. And so many portraits, too. I mean, he so, so many extraordinary portraits that he kept painting. I'm so glad you said that, John, because probably the most overlooked dimension of Bacon's painting is his portraiture. David Sylvester once said in a radio interview that he saw Bacon's portraits there as a long line in an English manor houses, you know, where you would, in the grand house, you would go through hundreds of years of ancestors. And then he said, and then you would get to the end and there would be the moldering Bacon. <laughs> so Bacon <laughs> was very deeply interested in portraiture. And beginning in the 1960s, you know, he painted all of these portraits, which I suppose justifiably, you know, people are so attracted to the great grand triptychs, but they're overlooking sort of an essential mm -hmm. and very important element in Bacon's work, which is the portraits. Right. So we're talking about the figure and, and Bacon's weird devotion to it through all of his work. And I was fascinated to read about his deeply close and complex friendship with the other great British figurative painter of the last half century, Lucian Freud. So would you talk a little bit about their friendship, what happened to it, and maybe a little bit about the painting of Bacon's that Freud bought and kept over his bed for the next, I don't know how many years, 30, 40, and would not sell, and what that signified? Well, that's really two questions. Maybe I'll talk about the, the, the painting the painting first. Yes. Uh, you're referring to it. It's really an icon of homosexual art. Right. It's an extraordinary painting uh, that shows two figures in the act of love. But the texture of the painting and the texture of the flesh, even though it's quite a monochromatic painting, are absolutely startling. The painting could not be shown at the time. The figure on the bottom has an expression on his face that as I think we say in the book, combines tenderness and ferocity in an almost indescribable way. It's a really remarkable picture. Freud, who is decidedly not homosexual, as you know, nonetheless got his hands on this painting yeah. and kept it over his own bed for the rest of his life, and he refused to lend it. 
because he said that if he ever lent it, when it came back, it would not be the same. So it became a sort of touchstone for Freud, a, a, almost a, an object of fetishistic devotion for him. And I think it because it spoke to Freud's feeling for the flesh and helped give Freud a way to, in, in his own work, confront the flesh. So interesting. So Freud was a younger by a decade and a bit than Francis Bacon, but was very knowing. He was an early developer. He was very, very shrewd. He insinuated himself into every bit of England and London life pre-war. When he and Bacon came together, it was a meeting of these two incredibly forceful personalities. With Freud being that much younger, it didn't matter. They kind of met on even ground, except that Lucian Freud said that Bacon was the most fearless person he had ever met. And he did over time in the beginning in the early 50s, Freud sort of looked to Francis Bacon to help him break away from and grow from his early, very, very northern, you know, that beautiful line that he had, sort of Durer. Mm -hmm. And so Bacon was a challenge for him. There was a meeting of minds creatively, artistically, which really lasted for decades. The two of them were, there were wonderful stories we heard that one of them would be at the colony room and the other would come in and they would instantly drop whoever they were talking to, to just go together and speak intensely together. That kind of bonding and artistic and emotional exchange lasted for 25 or so years. And it only began to, alas, and distance itself when Freud started to have great successes. And at that moment in time, then their rivalry set in and Freud would discourage Bacon and his entourage, he called the followers that inevitably always danced around Bacon. And then Bacon, for his part, said, oh, you know, Freud should have mm -hmm. stayed with his early style, his pretty little daubs or whatever he said. So they got to be quite right. poisonous. But it was sad because at one time it was such a wonderful, creative as well as personal friendship they had. Well, except also a mutual friend of them both said that there was no more obnoxious couple in London than Bacon and Freud when they were together because they were so, uh, they had eyes only for each other, and they, <laughs> sure. um, they were sort of looking down their nose, right? They were, they were criticizing. Very superior, yeah, they, very superior. They were, they were yeah. criticizing the world. But as obnoxious as that might sound, it's also one of the ways that artists develop courage. They have a friend very often, and that those friendships True. are a way to, uh, each person gives the other the courage to look down at the world and reject it and to say this is bad and to do their own thing. So yeah. it's a subtle and complicated kind of relationship that can develop between artists. Sort of a self-ratifying partnership. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So Bacon was hugely famous for decades, as you say, starting eventually the late 50s. And then there was, I think, a huge retrospective or a, a solo show in 1962 and he became bigger and bigger, obviously not universally praised, but hugely famous. His private life, like his art, was always discussed by everyone. And at the same time, it seems to me from how you depict it, always somehow in the shadows. You know, he was a gay man, as we discussed, with these exquisite manners when he chose, and a penchant for violent sex, oftentimes with working class lovers in a country where we need to underline, you know, homosexual acts were illegal and subject to harsh punishment until 1967. So 
After living with him yourselves for more than a decade, what do you see as the most unifying factors in this otherwise, you know, profoundly paradoxical guy? He never pretended that to be anything that he wasn't in terms of sex and homosexuality. He was remarkably brave in that area, too. But he was much more complicated than the persona mm -hmm. suggests. And I think that's what fascinated us. For example, yes, rough trade, some state of masochism, uh, one night stands. Yes, yes, of course. At the same time, long serial relationships, mm -hmm. not monogamous, but long serial relationships. And he never gave up the people he truly loved. He would keep them. He wanted partnership. He wanted domesticity sure. as well as these other things. And so to try to, uh, to convey the complexity of that, the paradoxes of that, is really what we were after. Annalyn? Well, I'm thinking specifically of that show I mentioned earlier in 1954, Contemporary Art Society. Mm -hmm. And along with the painting that Lucian Freud bought, there was a second figure, a second painting of two obviously homosexual figures. It's called Two Figures in the Grass, painted in the same period. That was included in the show. Two ladies took great offense at this image, reported it to the police. The police came and blessed their hearts, as we say. They pronounced that there was nothing untoward happening <laughs> in this painting at all. But Bacon did skirt a line there. He was not ever in as much danger as a homosexual as other people who frequented clubs that the police would then raid yeah. or the public toilets or anything like that. But to Bacon's fearlessness, that really is a really impressive thing about it. He never hid his sexuality. So that again speaks to a side of Bacon that wasn't just out there, you know, having those sex acts. You know, he was a complicated, fearless human being. Yeah. It really comes through in the book so well. So before we, we go, just wondering if you have any final thoughts on the question of artistic legacy, I would say, sort of in terms of de Kooning and Bacon, or you could say de Kooning versus Bacon, but looking out over the, the larger question of what the legacies of those artists are today, in your opinions, in the art world and how they live? Well, I think both are important for holding on to the figure, but also holding on to the figure in a certain way, holding on to the figure through touch, through a very physical feeling for paint. I think that's very important mm -hmm. in our culture right now, because we are losing the sense of touch in all kinds of ways as the world grows ever more abstract. Mm -hmm and remote and digital. They insisted upon the physical body on physical things and the figure. I think that's a very important saving sort of thing that both artists did. In addition, Bacon set the dark edge of 20th century art. He really established the, uh, in a way that's unforgettable, the darkest qualities of the century. He did other things too, but he also established those dark elements. And the 20th century was a very, very dark century in all kinds of ways. He confronted that and he developed a way to express it that was uh, very powerful. He didn't do it directly, he did it sort of indirectly. He wasn't sort of talking about atom bombs and things like that. But the stripped down figure, the figure without the protections 
of uh, traditional protection of society and culture stripped down and laid bare and the animal quality of human beings. He established that for the 20th century. And to me, the important thing to remember, too, is that there was a, such a personal brushstroke of both these artists that's so often lost in 20th century art and early 21st century. De Kooning said at one point, flesh is the reason for painting. And that his signature brushstroke, which was so inimically de Kooning, the speed, mm -hmm. the velocity. So you can't not look at that painting and see, if you know anything about 20th century art, that that is a de Kooning painting. And of course, even when he was at his most abstract, there were parts of the human anatomy in all of his paintings. True. So Bacon, on his side, you don't necessarily think of Bacon as this great master of the painterly touch. But where you see it most, I would submit, is in his self-portraits. There's some beautiful self-portraits mm -hmm. that he painted. They were always deeply reflective of his mood at the moment. But there you see the brushstrokes. Some of them were sort of confident and sort of magisterial when he was in a contemplative or a good place in his life. And then others were just uh, tortured practically. Mm -hmm. But you can't get away from the feeling of the paint until the very late Bacons, where one could argue that when he began spray painting the background and just having a figure in the front, they tended to lose some of that immediacy. But to me, looking at so many of their paintings, they're so immediate, so visceral, and so personal. It's really true. And listen, thank you so much for the books, for the conversation. It's just really interesting, and it, it changes one's perspective on all the art one sees and the sense of how the last century has passed. It's wonderful work. Mark, Annalyn, thank you guys so much. It's really been a great pleasure. Looking forward to seeing you back in Sun Valley soon, too. We hope so, too. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you. Thank All right. You. Thank Be you well. so much. Talk soon. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes at lithub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday.